Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, boozed and confused. Get ready to pay more for beer and wine this year. Why does Ottawa continue to binge on alcohol taxes? Plus, from a new cooling off period to a foreign buyer's ban, we look at what to expect in Vancouver real estate in 2023. And is it time we build tobacco companies for cleaning up cigarette butts? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. As of today, the province's new home buyer protection plan comes into effect. It is a mandatory three-day consumer protection period for real estate purchases in order to give home buyers an opportunity to secure financing and arrange uh, home inspections. Now, buyers will have three business days to back out of residential purchases after signing the contract. This applies to all contracts, regardless uh, of subjects. Now, two days ago, the federal government also introduced its foreign buyers ban. The foreign commercial enterprises and people will be prohibited from buying residential properties in Canada for two years. Now, Parliament approved the ban last summer in an effort to address housing shortages and affordability issues, but many people will be exempt from the new rule, including those with temporary uh, work permits, uh, refugee claimants, and international students uh, who meet uh, certain criteria. Joining me now to discuss the federal and provincial rules and the impact they'll have on the Vancouver market is Steve Suretsky. Mr. Suretsky is a realtor for Oakland Realty. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. So let's uh, touch on the news of the day. This uh, new homebuyer protection period uh, comes into effect today. Uh, your thoughts on this? Is this uh, generally a, a, a good thing to do, a good news story? I mean, I think if you're a buyer, you're you're probably, you know, happy about it, the opportunity to do due diligence. I think that the problem is, I think, you know, I think people, the public tends to get sort of things a bit confused if you're not in the industry day to day and, you know, think that the days of the wild, wild west, I think, you know, people always had the opportunity to do home inspections. I mean, certainly all of our clients would always do them. Um, you know, it's just a matter of like, you know, having to do a home inspection prior to making an offer in a competitive market. Um, you know, of course, the, the changes obviously come in place at a time when, uh, you know, the market really doesn't need a cooling off period. It needs a warming up period. It's, <laughs> you know, things, things have changed dramatically. So, it, you know, it's kind of typical government policy to always come in, um, Obviously, you know, once once things have already changed, basically. The market is slow, as you said, but uh, it, it, as we know very well, Vancouver market can get very hot very quickly. One would assume that cooling off period would be better suited for that time. So one could one not, one not argue that it is still a good thing overall at the end of the day, because yes, it's a pretty bad period now, but it it's never stays this way in Vancouver's real estate market. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the one thing I'll sort of, just to sort of add to it, I think, you know, if the, if the objective here is kind of like, you know, affordable housing or, or make housing more affordable, for example. Like, the one thing to consider here is, like, you get a lot of – so now you're strictly competing on price, right? So if you say, well, if everybody has basically a due diligence period, the only thing that makes one offer more attractive than the other is now price. So a lot of the times we'd see in a hot market is a seller would leave money on the table and say, well, you know, this one's subject-free – they got all their ducks in a row. Let's leave twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars on the table because you know it, it's a sure thing, and and we're going to take it. So now, so for example, if I'm a home builder, I've bought you know I build two two houses every single year, and uh, I've been doing this for twenty years. I, you know, and you're buying a really what is a teardown house. A home builder doesn't need a due diligence phase, and they don't want it. So their their objective is. I want to get this house for the lowest price possible. So I'm going to come in with, with no conditions and offer this price. Well, now, 
they don't have that option, right? So it, 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 I think it's just understanding like the pros and cons. Now, again, if you're a first-time home buyer that's never gone through the home buying process, and and all of a sudden you're into a hot market where everybody's subject free, this is probably good for you. You're probably happy about this. So. I just think it's understanding kind of, you know, the winners, the losers, the pros, the cons. Uh, I know this is hard to answer, but can you see people just walking away from a deal as well, saying, oh, maybe we're pushing ourselves a little too far? Uh, to my understanding, uh, the rescission fee is 0.25%. So on a million dollars, which isn't going to buy you much in this market, uh, except probably a condo, maybe a townhouse as well, um, it's about $2,500 that, that you would pay the seller roughly. Um, do you see people actually walking away as well, just thinking, yeah, maybe I didn't, uh, this may be a bit too hard for the family. I'm just going to walk away from this and I'll pay the 2,500 bucks. Yeah, I definitely think that's going to be the case. I think what's going to happen is like, you know, when you do get back into the hot market, you get five offers that come in and, you know, things get emotional. People tend to, you know, bid up above sort of their initial hopes or expectations. And then, you know, giving them a couple of days to sort of cool off and think about it, they might sort of, you know, have, have cold feet or buyer's remorse, so to speak. And uh, so I could see them saying, oh crap, maybe I paid too much money. Let's uh, let's just pay the twenty five hundred dollars and get out of this thing. So I definitely think we'll we'll certainly be seeing a lot of that. Um, so you know, I think yeah, it's something to sort of keep in mind for sure. Uh, now the new home home buyer uh, protection period uh, uh, rules came in in effect today, uh, January third. Now on January first, um, the federal government introduces two year ban on foreign home buyers your thoughts on whether or not that's going to have any impact on affordability in markets like vancouver and victoria and even the interiors around places like Kelowna. yeah i mean i think it's another thing like we just talked about at the beginning of the show right is like government policy coming in and always sort of uh reactive not proactive right i mean i think people in bc in particular have been talking about you know the influence of foreign money it's been debated for the last you know seven years and uh you know now all of a sudden that the policy is okay, and now it's time to, to, to ban this. So, I mean, to, to be honest, the way that the policy is set up, it's not really designed to have a whole lot of teeth. Uh, you know, it exempts, you know, foreign students, uh, foreign workers. Uh, if you look at the BC government's own statistics, because they measure, uh, they track all the sales that go through land titles office. And so, you know, BC, uh, foreign purchases uh, as a percentage of all the residential transactions in BC last year was just over 1%. It was about 1.2, 1.3% of all transactions. So uh, really what we're talking about is removing about 1% of the market, uh, the way that the tax is currently going to be designed um, and now implemented to you here, obviously in 2023. Within this rule, the, it does allow for international students uh, who meet certain criteria to to purchase property. I know in the past there have been stories about uh, foreign buyers using uh, students to purchase very expensive property in the millions and millions of dollars. Um, do you th- do you see any impact this time, or those types of things occurring uh, like they did in the past? Uh, I think that 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 those kind of stories, while they still may be odd, the odd one-offs here and there, I just think like the days of, of the, the gold rush of sort of you know the foreign capital flows, particularly out of China in 2015-16, we just they just they're not what they used to be. Um, you know, my proxy for for foreign capital has always been well, just look at how luxury pre-sale uh, condo developments are going. Let me know how the sales are doing. So. Go look at any tower in in Vancouver for twenty five, twenty six hundred dollars a square foot, and go look how the sales absorptions are doing. 
And, you know, they've really been non-existent and very, very slow for the last four years. So I just think that, um, you know, things have changed. I mean, it was uh, was a period of time where we had a huge influx of capital. People wanted things to to be done about it. And, and, um, you know, now we're, we're obviously bringing in a policy. Things have changed again, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question to you. Uh, very curious as to what you think 2023 will look like for the Vancouver real estate market. I am asking you to look at your crystal ball. It's a hard thing to do. I'm sure you couldn't have predicted the market we're in right now five years ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on 2023 as, as we uh, begin this year? Well, I think, you know, look at, you talk about the, the foreign buyer ban. I think the government might actually be able to, to use this as a, as a win in their books, anyways, from a political perspective, because. I think what's going to happen is I think there's downwards pressure on the housing market, not just in BC, but nationally. And uh, I think that's largely to do with, with mortgage rates, um, you know, going from basically 2% to today, you're about five and a half percent for a five year fixed mortgage. So um, that's really what's, what's slowing the market. And um, so maybe the government can say, Hey, you know, look, our foreign buyer ban worked, you know, house prices fell, you know, 8% or whatever in 2023. Um, but I think really the story here is going to be interest rates for 2023. While we might be reaching the end of this rate hiking cycle from the Bank of Canada, it does not mean rate cuts are imminent. And so I think that, uh, you know, we could be stuck with higher than, than usual uh, mortgage rates for, for this year. And that's going to, uh, I think that's going to challenge the market. Uh, are you hearing anecdotally of people leaving the market? Uh, I'm sorry, not people, but uh, real estate agents themselves, a 50% drop in sales. That's got to impact, I would assume, real estate agents uh, and those that may not sell a lot just leaving the market. I think that we'll certainly see that. I don't know if we've seen that yet. If you look at the numbers, I don't think we're seeing that yet. But I think there's no question, right? I mean, there's no point in sugarcoating it. When when volumes, I mean, mortgage originations, for example, across the country are down 30%. I mean, it's just it's just less business for for mortgage brokers, realtors, and uh, so it is only a matter of time, I think, till till uh, till some of them will leave the industry. Career changes, uh, you know, those that are nearing retirement will just opt not to renew their real estate license. Um, so we'll certainly see, I think, a drop off. I think it's still probably a little bit early, but uh, no question, anecdotally, you're hearing, you know, the odd case here and there. Steve, thanks for your time today, my friend. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk escalator taxes, specifically alcohol escalator taxes. Elected officials love escalator taxes. Announce them once, deal with the uproar, and then the tax is forgotten, even though the tax increases every year at a set date. Hence the term escalator tax. Now, the federal alcohol escalator tax is an automatic increase to excise duties that has gone up four times in the last three years and is scheduled to increase on April 1st by 6.3%. Now, remember, Canada already has some of the highest alcohol taxes in the world. On average, get this now, 47% of the price of beer in Canada is from federal or provincial taxes. Approximately 65% of the price of wine is due to taxes. And on average, 80%, yes, 80% of the price of spirits is taxes. In total, Canadians already pay about $20 billion with a B per year in alcohol taxes. The escalator tax uh, increases the tax burden even more every single year on April 1st. Coincidentally, as you know, April Fool's Day. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the alcohol escalator tax is Jeff Guinard, president of BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Happy New Year. 
Hey, Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, it, well, I'm, we're saying Happy New Year, and it is a Happy New Year, although a tax is coming on, on April 1st, uh, on April Fool's Day. Yeah. First of all, talk to me a little bit about uh, your thoughts on this escalator tax and the impact uh, in regards to your alliance and even restaurateurs who I'm sure you're talking to. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things about this. I mean, and, and the first one is just the staggering cost increases that it puts onto our businesses. And from our perspective, you think of how crazy this is. So this has just been an automatic increase in excise tax in 2017. We go through a global pandemic where the vast majority, nearly 95% of every single pub, bar, restaurant, nightclub in the province of British Columbia was losing money or barely breaking even, right? We were so injured by the pandemic financially, the government was offering us grants and interest-free loans. At the same time, every year on April 1st, they put up our excise tax on the purchase price of our alcohol so the federal government makes a bit more money. That's a particularly difficult pill for our industry to swallow when we're just trying to get back to normal business operations here. Um, what's the justification on, on the part of the federal government for doing this? Well, I, I have no idea. I mean, we, we've been speaking with the federal government about this for a while. And I mean, I, I understand, uh, you know, certainly we, you want to deal with something once, you know, like indexing it to inflation always sounds like a logical idea. That way it's just, it's based on what the economy does. But uh, you know, what, what I tend to think about is what, what's the purpose of parliament, right? Why, why do we pay folks to go to Ottawa and act as our legislators, right? So they're better path laws, which you don't need to do every day, but mm-hmm. they're also there to control the government's finances. They're managing the books for Canada. So this escalator tax removes the Democratic vote from Parliament. From the, so they don't even have to think about it every year. It just happens. And there's nobody even supervising it. And now this year, with inflation at 6.3%, we're going to be hit with a massive increase. So you go to your local bar, your local pub, your local restaurant, go to your local liquor store, and you're going to notice the cost of alcohol increases. It's not the business owner making an extra cent. Our cost structures have stayed the same. In fact, our costs have gone up just like everybody else's have gone up. But at the end of the day, government is choosing to make a bit more money out of it. And we are already one of the highest tax jurisdictions on the planet for alcohol. So it just doesn't make sense for industry. And and we're asking government to just revisit this. If you need to increase the excise tax, just do it on a year-by-year basis as part of the budget, the way you did prior to 2017. Hmm. Do you know of any other industry that is dealing with something similar? That may not be the excise tax, but certainly would be an escalator tax. I don't have the top of my head, but I, I think any industry that's just facing automatic increases without even having a conversation, without anybody looking at the state of play or the lay of the land, it's just it's not responsible government, right? That that's not what Parliament was designed to do. And anytime po- folks have proposed this, you, you have a pushback on it because it doesn't make sense. When it came in, inflation is only around two percent, so I, I you know we were annoyed about it, but people weren't making as big of a deal because consumers weren't going to feel it in their pockets now. But what I would say is if you're listening and you notice after April that the cost of alcohol goes up once again, please take a moment, write your member of parliament in your area and tell them that the government should scrap the escalator tax and the parliament should have a vote in this increase. And just to confirm, this this impacts all types of alcohol. It's beer, it's wine, it's spirits. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, no matter what you're purchasing, it's all caught up in it. And let me give you an example of how highly taxed we already So the province of British Columbia, if you're importing wine from you know somewhere in Europe, you find a go to the vineyard and you're a you know a big producer, you find the bottle of maybe $4 a bottle or something like that. By the time you package it up, you put it on a ship, you take it over to Canada, it crosses a couple of oceans, you know, the cost could be something like $10 a bottle. As soon as it lands into the liquor distribution branches, warehouses in BC, they mark it up 89%, 89%. So then any pub, bar, restaurant, or liquor store buys it, 
cost $18.90. They market a couple of dollars, and all of a sudden that $4 bottle becomes $22.95 on a shelf somewhere. Right, So we're already massively paying taxes. Now we're paying 6% more from that. And the only person that's making more money is the government of Canada. So that's, that's a tough pill to swallow when, as I was saying a while ago, we're still dealing with massive debts from the, from the pandemic where government was giving us interest-free loans and grants. Right, So I think this circle doesn't quite square for us. Yeah. I understand in the U.S. they're actually cutting taxes for alcohol or specifically beer. We're, we're obviously yeah. headed in the opposite direction. Yeah, in other jurisdictions, I mean, they look at the, the hospitality industry and the liquor industry as a, a source for economic growth, right? And it's an opportunity to maybe make some smart policies that would encourage those industries. We've done very similar things in British Columbia, where the provincial government implemented wholesale pricing for liquor licensees, for example. So what that means is, prior to the pandemic, if you went to a pub, um, you know, if you bought a, you know, a bottle of wine, we would pay the same dollar value for that bottle that you would as a consumer walking into a liquor store. Right. So what the British Columbia government did was gave us a wholesale price, which ended up reducing the price of alcohol substantially. Those are the kinds of smart decisions that end up helping a lot of businesses survive the pandemic and get back on their feet. The federal government, for whatever reason, has decided to, you know, and they did a lot of other policies to support businesses during the pandemic. But in this case, they've decided it's the time to keep increasing alcohol taxes. It just doesn't make sense. It's not a responsible approach to taxation policy or, or liquor policy. Uh, and we've been asking, you know, us and 250 other different industry and business leaders um, have been asking the federal government to sit down and find a better solution for this. And uh, are they sharing any of those dollars with the province uh, or is the, the province's uh, tax would come for the liquor distribution branch? Uh, they're separate streams. So the, the federal government takes that in, it goes into their revenue streams and they choose to spend it on the, whatever the highest priorities of government are. Uh, and, the federal, and the provincial taxes go into, again, the separate streams. Uh, but I will say, if you look across Canada, uh, you know, and we are one of the highest tax jurisdictions on the planet when it comes to alcohol. But in BC, for example, without the federal government component, we're already fourth largest source of revenue for the provincial government. It makes $1.5 billion a year off of alcohol. Add into that the tens of millions of dollars a year the federal government makes. The people who get hurt from that are typically the producers. You know, everything from the small wineries and distilleries and craft breweries all the way through to the larger national chains. Uh, everybody is paying that tax, which they just they have to pass it on to consumers. So there's no winners here in this. And you know, I say that the frustrating part for us is, you know, if you speak to your local member of parliament, they may not even be aware of it because they haven't had an opportunity to vote on it since 2017. It's just been baked into the normal process. So it's time to revisit that and change it. Um, and if you know you need to, or if government feels they need to increase the tax, they should justified to Canadians, justified to the business community, and treat us like equitable partners in this equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a concerted, a concerted effort on your part and others working in the hospitality sector uh, to raise the profile of this issue and, and to, to yeah. lobby the government on this one? A- absolutely. You know, if you land at the Ottawa International Airport uh, you know, in December, you'll notice the big signs with the partners at Beer Canada and Spirits Canada and Restaurants Canada and other associations that have we can, you know, we've been trying to speak with government about this for a while, and they haven't been listening, so we've been trying to ask the public for some of their support. If you're sick and tired of paying more for alcohol every year, 
you, know, you should speak to your member of parliament and ask them to look into it and stop this automatic escalator tax. Now, now there's no doubt, I mean, there are repercussions when people drink alcohol. On the provincial side, it, it could be drinking and driving, impacts on our health care system. And as you yes. said, the streams are different. Provincial uh, taxes stay in the province. Federal taxes are the excise tax. And they go to the federal programs and they, you know, they come back and transfer payments and all that. I mean, you as an industry yeah. aren't talking about paying your fair share of taxes. The concern you have is this is a baked-in tax increase every single year moving forward. Absolutely. right. Look, we stand for a responsible beverage industry. We always have. And we feel like we pay our fair share. If government feels like we are not and they want to find a way to offset any other health care increases that have come from you know, alcohol consumption, then that's a conversation we are absolutely happy to have. But that was not why the escalator tax was increased. It was increased to increase government revenue. So in that case, like that, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to us. And there's no argument that says it's you know the healthcare costs associated with alcohol consumption have increased by inflation every year, right? Like it's just, this doesn't make sense. So our concern about it is that it's being done without thought, right? No one is thinking about it. And I know I know it's complicated. Government is difficult. It's always balancing multiple competing priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, we're ready to have that conversation, as any other industry would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just want something fair for our businesses, particularly as they come under the pandemic. And you have to think of, you know, what the folks that we represent at ABLBC, we're over a thousand businesses across the province of British Columbia. It's neighborhood pubs, it's bars, it's private liquor stores, most of which are family-run businesses and are all small businesses. They do not have extra cash to pay. So we have no choice but to pass this on to consumers. And consumers don't know why we're increasing the cost. They assume it's, it's because we're being greedy. We are not. We're barely hanging on in a lot of cases. So when government says, well, you just have an automatic increase every year, that's a difficult pill to swallow, right? Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, thanks so much for your time, my friend. Oh, it is my pleasure. Have yourself a great day and happy new year to you. It's a new year, and with it comes plenty of talk about optimism and opportunity uh, for Metro Vancouver businesses. Well, the new data released by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's Business Data Lab show there are also many areas of concern for Metro Vancouver's business community. Uh, joining me now to discuss some of those challenges and obstacles is Bridget Anderson. Ms. Anderson is President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, thank you for joining us today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Jeff. Yeah, good to chat with you. Good to hear your voice. Walk me through. I mean, we we spent a lot of time talking about recession, uh, interest rates and inflation. What's the number one issue for your members uh, in Metro Vancouver's Board of Trade? Well, it shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone. I think as individuals, we have all been feeling the crunch of inflation and rising costs, and businesses are feeling exactly the same. So this new survey that is out of Greater Vancouver Businesses show that they have got some pretty significant financial concerns going into this new year, and specifically uh, increases in inflation, in operating costs, in interest rates, in what it costs for their real estate costs or leasing costs. And also on top of all of that, which is sort of a perfect storm of rising costs, there's additional costs when it comes to recruiting and retaining talent that are also um, very difficult right now for employers. Hmm. Uh, are employers raising wages? I know people are going to say that, look, I, I get the, you know, uh, the concerns over interest rates and, and inflation, but also they feel, look, we as individuals have to deal with the, these rising costs as well. Are your members, employers that, that you speak to raising wages and conscious of raising wages for, for, for workers? 
Yeah, about three quarters of the businesses surveyed say that they are going to have to raise wages to recruit and retain talent. And whether we're talking about wages or we're talking about some of the other costs that I mentioned just a minute ago, we have to remember that businesses are are left with two choices. Either they absorb these costs or they pass them on to customers and clients. And many are saying that they are expecting that they're going to have to pass on costs. So about half expecting that their expenses are going to go up while their profits go down. Mm -hmm. And then about a third of those saying, well, they're going to have to raise prices. So, you know, I mean, there is only one wallet and we talk about this all the time. But definitely if businesses are feeling the crunch, individuals are going to be feeling it as well if they haven't been already. We were just talking about um, federal alcohol taxes, the uh, escalator taxes, which automatically go up every year. Um, Is there a level of government that has a greater say on uh, an impact on local businesses? Are these federal taxes you're most concerned about, uh, provincial? Or is it it issue of just barriers and uh, permitting at the municipal level? Well, Jazz, as you well know from spending time uh, (laughs) in the provincial government system, all three levels of government can and do add costs to businesses. I mean, if you break it down at the local level, that can really impact businesses, whether it comes to permitting and licensing and some of those property taxes. And so with a whole bunch of new municipal governments in place, and particularly um, in Vancouver, you know, looking at Vancouver businesses, there's an opportunity here to really stand back and take a look at what those delays are costing. And the city has been doing that for some time, even prior to the election, but that needs to be expedited. And then at the other two levels of government, you know, we're talking about tax reform, we're talking about innovation, and we're talking about the, you know, when we're looking at the employment crunch, there's lots that both governments, the provincial and federal government can do, increasing immigration, uh, accelerating micro-credentials, accelerating foreign credentials. I mean, really, it's going to take an effort by all three levels of government working with businesses to find some of the solutions as these costs continue to escalate. Uh, Are your members using the R word, recession? Many, many of our members have been concerned about that for several months. And I, I think our members probably reflect what is being discussed in in media and in the public, that there is some, um, I think, still not full agreement about just what a potential recession could look like, just how significant it could be. And our members are, are noticing the same. Uh, and certainly, you know, very, very a lot of concern goes with uh, with recession, not just at a time where we've got rising inflation, and rising costs. But, you know, if we've got people pulling back on their spending, that's a really big challenge for all businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, when people talk about uh, inflation, they'll talk about it in a, nas- in a national context or a international context. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, but, but just getting back to Metro Vancouver just for a second, are we still competitive? And when I, what I mean by that is, if I'm uh, somebody from a different jurisdiction wants to set up a business here, uh, you've got high housing costs. You've got, uh, at times, difficulty moving around uh, in regards to transportation uh, in, this, in this city. Um, are we competitive still as a region? Maybe competitive enough. I mean, Vancouver and, and British Columbia is always going to be a jurisdiction where people are gone, going to want to move to. It, we've got a fantastic educational system. We've got a very secure banking system. We've got a great environment, all of that. But as you say, we've got a number of challenges that we have to deal with. It's not just affordability around living. Housing, as we know, we've been talking about this for a long time, is a very significant barrier for attracting retaining talent. 
We know that, you know, it is a high jurisdiction as far as costs of doing business and one of the highest around. And so, you know, we've got budgets coming up for the federal government and the provincial governments. And this is when we start to really take a look at what those added costs of businesses are. And they're significant. And so, you know, the appeal is to both levels of government at the federal and provincial level to really, really look at it in their budgets and determine ways to make this more uh, more competitive jurisdiction. Because you're right, I mean, it is a global uh, market. And so we have to make sure that we're doing whatever we can to remove those barriers. Yeah, the reason I ask you that is if you take the taxes aside, inflation aside, but just as a parent or as a citizen living here, uh, it is the number one issue. And part of it is taxes and the ability to be competitive, but it's also just daily life. People always say it's just too expensive here. Mm-hmm. I'd rather deal with the winter in Calgary or in Edmonton or move to a smaller community. I do worry for this place. I mean, do you hear that from your members beyond the business side, but just as as, as taxpayers, as residents, as parents? I mean, it, it, I really do worry about our competitiveness in that sense and the ability for people to say, you know, I can if I work hard, I can make it here. That has always been the middle class sort of agreement that we've told people. You work hard, you get educated, you can make it in this city and you can have a decent life. I'm not sure if that agreement or that conversation is true today. I would say that there are a lot of our members who have expressed concern about that. And listen, I've got a 19 and 21 year old who mm-hmm. also uh, reflect that conversation. Not sure that they're going to be able to, once they finish their post-secondary schooling, to be able to afford to live and work in greater Vancouver. And our members have been telling us since prior to the pandemic. So for a long, long time that attracting and retaining talent is their largest concern because it is um, also involved with affordability. You know, it's a global market for talent. A lot of people can choose to work remotely. So how do we then be able to attract and retain them if the cost of housing and just other affordability issues are front and centre? It is a really significant concern. Bridget, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jeff. Well, on December 20th, Ottawa began phasing in a law that aims to eventually remove many single-use plastics from the market altogether. Now, the initial phase prohibits the manufacturing and import for sale of a range of single-use plastics. So that would include checkout bags like the ones used in grocery stores, cutlery such as forks, knives, and chopsticks, um, takeout containers made partially or fully from plastic, Uh, including styrofoam. Uh, Now, plastic ring carriers will be banned for manufacture and import for sale in June of 2023. Now, by December of 2023, by the end of this year, uh, we will see a ban on the sale of all these products. In December of 2025, a ban on the manufacture, import, and export for sale of all these products will also come into effect. Now, you can only imagine what impact these new rules will have on the restaurant industry. Joining us now to discuss these new changes... And the impact it'll have on the industry is Ian Tostenson. He's a president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Happy New Year, Ian. Happy New Year, Jazz. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Hopefully the holidays treated you well, my friend. You got some time to rest and relax? Yeah, it was good. It was uh, a little different in the last two and a half uh, years. And it was calm and, and we our industry was busy, really busy as a matter of fact. And there still continues to be a pent-up demand. We have a lot of places that are doing Christmas parties still in January because they couldn't get in in December. So that's really? really good news. Oh, yeah. that's really good news. So and we're how, really how, pleased about that. And how about uh, on the labor front? Are things improving slowly? Well, it get a little easier now until the spring, yeah. um, just because of demand. Because we're going to a slow period, our siesta time, but uh, not really. I mean, it's still a major 
a major problem. And, and the problem is, at the end of the day, the big picture is it's it's a demographic issue. Just don't have enough people in Canada. I see the federal government today was talking about uh, record levels of immigration, and that's that's a good thing. But I'm still waiting to hear the provincial and federal government call labor shortage a crisis in Canada for all industries and have a strategy to deal with that because they, they, I, to my, I can't see a strategy right now. It's just kind of like everybody's sort of ducking it and we've got to, we've got to do it. That's a future. So, um, but you know, we, we have ways, you know um, you know, we can, our, our, our footprint in restaurants, we can shrink, we can play their menus a little bit, make it simpler, you know, make our menus simpler. So the things that we can do, to get through it, but but when we do that, we're not maximizing the potential of the physical space and the opportunity in that restaurant. But um, mm-hmm. we always keep working at it and chipping away, and we'll eventually get that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's look at another uh, immediate um, issue. It may not be an existential challenge, but it is <laughs> one that is immediate, which is, of course, um, uh, the auto wanting to phase in, uh, obviously, a law that began on December 20th, but a lot of it is going to be uh, phased in this year and next. And, of course, that's the import for sale of you know single-use plastics. How are restaurants, especially takeout facilities uh, in your organization that you represent, how are they dealing with, with, with this phase-in and what they expect to occur in 2023? You know, Jazz, so I've been thinking about how to explain this because it really, you go down a rabbit hole when you start talking about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so the first thing I'd say is on the, on the big picture, you know, there's, there's sort of three themes on this. There's infrastructure, there's cost and supply. So if you look at cost uh, alone, so when you switch away from plastic and you move to biodegradable or um, compostable, which are different items, people think they're the same. The compostable has to be, will disintegrate in 90 days and biodegradable could take up to a thousand years. So, you know, so the consumer needs to educate themselves a little bit about when they buy things, they'll say, oh, it's compostable or it's biodegradable. So that's the situation there. But a lot of the infrastructure can't handle it. So if you have a, uh, a biodegradable plastic container and it's soiled, mm-hmm. you, you can do nothing with it because so unless we, before we put it into the uh, recycling, clean it, then it goes into the landfill. On the other problem with it is that there's no facilities really to, um, to, to, to deal with that, that particular product. So the infrastructure is not there to sort it and to put it in the proper way. So the governments are going to really have to step up as opposed to imposing this kind of stuff. And, and it's imposing for good reason. We fully support the environmental side of this, but the governments have to provide the infrastructure. Like in Victoria, they brought in um, and said, oh, this is great packaging. We recommend this. And when they went down a little bit further and restaurants got into this particular packaging, which was, I think, compostable, they realized there wasn't the infrastructure there to process this stuff. So therefore, the, the packaging wasn't, wasn't valid at this point. It will be in the future. The cost of, of it is two to ten times, depending what it is, and so, and that's so. Then that's the supply side. So, right now, um, a lot. If you move to say cardboard, um, you at the same time you've got a lot of the mills that are shutting down, and you're dealing with pulp, and so prices are going up, and the availability is going down. So that becomes a challenge. And then you can switch to things like cornstarch and bamboo and mushrooms, and there's all sorts of alternatives. But you've got to go find that. And where we're seeing right now is the, the bigger restaurant groups, they have the infrastructure themselves to be able to sort this out, study it, and put in place the right things. It's the small restaurants, and in particular, I think, uh, ethnic restaurants that are really going to struggle with this because 
they don't have necessarily, you know, talk about labor shortage, they don't necessarily have the resources to go source this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is kind of complicated. You know, I mean, a lot of the big companies, they have people dedicated to this. And so they're trying to find the right combination of the right packaging, the right cost, um, you know, switching a lot of cases now away from plastic takeout to bags. And if you've been to a liquor store, they used to sell, you know, you go buy wine in the bag, a plastic bag is easy to carry. Now the, the, the bag's, Basically, you can't trust them. So there's a whole bunch of short-term changes we have to make as a society. And then I I look, uh, Jazz, I think I can just leave you on this one, or not Mm -hmm. leave you, but just in Vancouver, I said, you know, we're charging 25 cents for cups. What does that do? It just just puts the price up. But why don't we work with industry and say, we've got a problem in Vancouver. We've got all these cups. They're plastic lines, so they they can't be, um, they can't go, uh, they they can't be um, recycled. Where are all the containers? Where's all the where's the program in Vancouver say, Well you're in Vancouver, please, you know, deal with your coffee cups and these receptacles and stuff. And their answer was, Well, it's really costly. But it's really costly for for private industry and or the consumers to so there's an, we need this 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 uh, bringing together government and industry not just to work together, not just to be imposed on this stuff and try to figure it out because We've been dealing with this stuff for two or three years, and uh, honestly, we could have someone in our organization just on environmental stuff itself. It's so confusing. Yeah, and partially, I think, as, as you say, the, you know, the difference between recycling and compostable. I, I remember when I was in MLA, we were talking about those single-use coffee pods. Some of them are compostable. Others were just getting to the point where they'd be recyclable. They may not work within the system here in Metro Vancouver. That's part of the problem. We've got a sort of the regional approach to recycling, uh, yes. yet the legislation is provincial. So one, one hand isn't talking to the other hand, and that's part of the challenge. But I'm going to assume that the the changes that are required, like the average consumer, our listeners, will perhaps see things a little different when it comes to forks and knives or takeout, uh, whatever the product may be. This is slowly going to get implemented. People will see this when they uh, go to their local favorite restaurant in regards to takeout. Yeah, utensils have moved to wood bamboo. Uh, I was talking to a restaurant in South and said it all works, except a lot of complaints about the spoons. (laughs) They're not really spoons, they're almost like pitchforks. Yeah. Pitch spoons if you will, but the technology is coming. So, you know, there's a race for technology to do the right thing. So this is not about me complaining we shouldn't do it. I'm absolutely, this is, this is part of our brand and our responsibility. But when you have rising costs, I mean, Jeff was on earlier, my colleague talked about the excise tax, right? Yeah. And just, you know, adding 6% here and then, you know, 10% to business here, uh, you know, ultimately the consumer pays for this. And so we, we need to be a bit more strategic about this versus being, you know, a little bit uh, philosophical. I mean, it's important. But I, I find that, like, in Victoria, I've done a really good job. They said, we want to do this, we're going to do it a year from now. And that's the kind of bridges that we need to make the adjustments we need to sort of help industry get to where it is. But, uh, no, we'll start to see it. And you're starting to see the conversion. You know, I, I don't, I mean, styrofoam, some places are exempted, for example. Like, hospitals are exempted from styrofoam uh, because it's cheap. You know, you know water yeah. in a styrofoam cup. And same with butchers, you know, when you're, when you buy meat, they're in a styrofoam base. So, you know, we're early days in this kind of stuff. And I know we'll get there. And I know ultimately, uh, you know, jazz that, you know, the, the visibility of restaurants are so, uh, is so immense that we have to, our responsibility in many cases is to set the, set the tone here yeah. and to get people to understand and lead and stuff. And, and that's where our government can really help us. Ian, thanks for your time today, my friend. Thanks, jazz. Happy New Year. 
two intercity bus routes on Vancouver Island that connect, connect uh, Victoria, Nanaimo, and Tofino with dozens of municipalities and First Nations are being suspended this week. Wilson's Transportation, the private company that manages the Vancouver Island connector and Tofino bus line, said it can't afford to keep running at a loss when ridership drops significantly in the period after the holidays and before the summer. Now, after today's trips, the two bus routes will be suspended until May. Uh, purchased by Wilson's in 2018, Tofino bus provides the island's only West Coast uh, intercity bus service and offers transportation to 29 communities and 21 First Nations. These bus uh, bus companies uh, connect the island, they connect the interior, they connect the north. They're very important uh, for many communities outside the Lower Mainland as well. Joining us now to talk about this issue is John Wilson, President and CEO of Wilson's Transportation. John, thank you for joining us today. No, thanks for having me, Jess. Appreciate it. Uh, this has got to be a tough decision for you, I'm, I'm going to assume, you and your company. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a, uh, it wasn't taken lightly. Um, we, uh, we came out of the pandemic, a, a different company, uh, with not, uh, not as much, uh, slush fund, shall we call it to, to subsidize some of our lighter runs. And, uh, we were concerned about how some of these ones runs would react after post pandemic and, uh, particularly in the off seasons mm-hmm. season. And, uh, sure enough, the, the, uh, Island run has, uh, is to a point now where we can we can no longer afford to subsidize it through the uh, uh, slower seasons, uh, but we hope to maintain it May through September, and had to take the make the tough decision to close it down today. Actually, is uh, is uh, there any conversation with the provincial government stepping in uh, to help you get through some of these lighter months? Because uh, you know, I grew up in the interior in Williams Lake. The Greyhound bus service was so important for a lot of folks heading into the Vancouver or just getting around the province. Uh, and sometimes I don't think Metro Vancouver re- residents realize how important these bus services are. Is there any conversation with the provincial government providing you some temporary help to get you through this period? Uh, yes, there is. Yeah, and I, and I would like to say, like, during the pandemic, the, the provincial government was one of the few uh, uh, provincial governments in the country that uh, the BC, uh, Premier Horgan uh, and his team stepped up and, and did offer an industry-specific grant to Intercity in British Columbia mm-hmm. during the uh, uh, pandemic to keep the buses rolling at, with some degree of uh, schedule for the rural communities. But you, you've really uh, brought to light a, an important point that, uh, uh, you know, the urban communities are serviced well uh, and continues to grow with public transportation through BC Transit and TransLink in British Columbia. Um, but it's the rural communities that are left uh, without connectivity uh, to these urban communities, uh, to families, medical appointments, on it goes. And, uh, and that's where this the public intercity service has uh, led years ago by Greyhound, of course, and taken over um, and gre- uh, upon Greyhound's departure by uh, companies such as ours. Um, the, uh, the vital links to First Nations and, and rural communities um, that... Uh, you know, I've tried to maintain the service, but are unable to. And, and that's what I'm, I'm the current chair of Motor Coach Canada. And we're trying to uh, advocate at a federal and a provincial level as far as uh, tapping into some of this money, billions of dollars that's sent right across the country into public transit. Um, we believe uh, like if 5% of that was redirected to the intercity network, mm-hmm. we could maintain some of these rural routes. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a Vancouver Island issue. I mean, as you, as you said, it's, oh. it's, it's Alberta, it's Saskatchewan, it's Manitoba. And, and in right, your case, that. you're yeah. connecting 21 non-First Nations communities and 21 First Nations communities on the island itself. So it is quite significant. 
Absolutely, absolutely. It's very important to these people and and uh, and to and to to our island as uh, you know, keeping people feeling as one and and being have that connectivity. And and in, in a lot of uh, situations, it's connecting families and and again uh, medical appointments and and such. And uh, it's 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 integral. And hopefully, we can. Uh, uh, the Ministry of Transportation, uh, either at the uh, provincial level or at the federal level, or together they can find a way to uh, get some subsidies flowing right across the country to reconnect the uh, the rural communities. Is is there anything that is a short term change to this issue, or are we just going to have to wait till you start up your service in May again? At this point, can there can is there any short term help financially that can come from the ministry to help you? Oh, talk? absolutely. So yep. are you ta- you're talking to the ministry right now? Then absolutely. I've I've had conversations, or we we've had conversations with Minister Fleming and and his deputies, and uh, we've you know they they have all the information they need. Uh, they just need some time. And they know that we're a phone call away and can start up the service in 24 hours if, if the subsidy is there to, to, to make sure we're not, we're not bleeding on the run. John, I want to thank you for your time today. And please do keep us up to date on any changes because so many of our listeners on the island do listen to CKNW. And we want to make sure we keep them aware of what's going on because it is such a vital service for so many communities here. Thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jess. Take care. Family members of American football star Damar Hamlin uh, say they are deeply moved by fan support after the player suffered a cardiac arrest uh, during a primetime U.S. National Football League game last night. The Buffalo Bills player remains in critical condition after spending the night in a hospital intensive care unit, uh, according to his team. Uh, Mr. Hamlin collapsed after colliding with an opponent during uh, the match. Of course, fans have rallied behind the player. The collision happened uh, during the first quarter of the game. Hamlin received on-field medical attention for more than 30 minutes before being taken uh, to a local hospital. His team later confirmed the player had suffered a cardiac arrest and said that his heartbeat was restored on the field on Monday. Take a listen. The entire Bills team is out on the field right now. Several players are down on their knees. Other players are holding hands, praying. You can just see the worried looks uh, on their faces. Hamlin is the one who was in on that stop on T. Higgins. And then he got up and just went right back down to the ground. Not what any of us want to see, and everybody's around him, and just hope that he's going to be okay. Uh, those are some of the sounds and comments from last night's Monday night football game. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, cardiac arrest is Dr. Jason Andrade. He's a cardiac electrophysiologist at Vancouver General Hospital. Dr. Andrade, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm going to start with something basic because uh, I find it very fa- fascinating in regards to what happened last night. We all want him, uh, Mr. Helen, to get better here. For, for our listeners, first of all, can you explain what cardiac arrest is? Yeah, so, I mean, cardiac arrest and heart attack uh, often are used interchangeably, but they're typically different terms. So heart attacks are typically, you know, blockages in the arteries that stop the blood flow. But a cardiac arrest is really an electrical problem. So the electrical system of the heart goes haywire, uh, the heart no longer contracts and functionally uh, stops working. Uh, how rare um, is, or how rare, rare is cardiac arrest among athletes? Uh, Generally speaking, at a professional level, cardiac arrest is incredibly rare. I mean, most professional athletes undergo extensive screening to make sure that there's no heritable conditions or other problems that could predispose them to this risk. 
so we typically don't see it happen very often, which is why it's so dramatic when it does occur. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you look at when you when you hear about cardiac arrest, when I, I recall looking at the images and watching television last night. I was watching the game. Uh, you, you see a, an athlete at just a peak physical condition. Uh, and to see what uh, Mr. Hamlin was going through. What are the long-term effects of cardiac arrest? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. Uh, I mean, when you have a cardiac arrest, as I say, it's an electrical problem. Uh, Really, it's a matter of fixing that electrical problem as quick as you can. Um, You know, a lot of cardiac arrests, when they happen out of hospital, aren't survivable just because people don't get prompt CPR and don't get their normal heart rhythm restored. Uh, If you have CPR available, if you have medical personnel who can attend to you quickly, um, you know, you can defibrillate the heart, get it back into a normal rhythm, and then there tends to be not much in terms of a long-term risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really, uh, you know, the consequences are how long it takes the heart to get back into a normal rhythm and all the other problems that come along with it. And then the second piece is really just why did the cardiac arrest happen? Is it something that's, you know, easily reversible and you don't expect it to happen again? Or is there some underlying problem that may come back down the road? Mm-hmm. What would, I mean, this is speculative and, I, and, and I'll say that up front because we don't have all the medical information, but recovery, is, does it take a long time? Uh, again, it, it really depends partly on how or the reason why the people have the cardiac arrest and then also the consequences in terms of the short term. Um, you know, you may recall that two years ago, a, a soccer player by the name of Christian Eriksen had a cardiac arrest while playing at the European Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was back playing uh, for Manchester United and then in the uh, World Cup just this past year. So, you know, it, it, presuming that there's a cause identified or at least a treatment can be offered, then people can get back to high-level sporting activity. Um, you know, as I say, a lot of arrests aren't survived immediately, uh, and there can be some long-term consequences if the, there's a long period before the, the heartbeat is restored. Is there, are there specific sports that you see more of this in? Uh, it depends. I mean, I think one of the things that has been part of the conversation since yesterday is a little bit of a speculation as to, you know, why he had the cardiac arrest. Uh, there's a particular mechanism that's kind of been discussed, which is something called commotio cordis or agitation of the heart is the sort of the English term for it, where if there's enough trauma placed on the chest overlying the heart, that can precipitate one of these dangerous heart rhythms. I mean, that's exceedingly rare. It's sort of 20 cases a year described in North America. But you tend to see it in uh, contact sports with younger men. So baseball players taking a baseball to the chest. Uh, Chris Pronger apparently had this happen with a hockey puck to the chest. Mm -hmm. And you see it with football players as well. So it's possible that that's the mechanism. Um, You know, other people uh, like um, Christian Erickson or other regions, it's something to do with a heritable condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, In general, you know, these are fairly rare events, which is why it's so dramatic when we see them happen. And this, of course, happens on a a, national television. Uh, You have medical personnel there. But that goes back to what you're saying earlier, which is the importance of people knowing CPR as well. Yeah, I mean, anytime, you know, someone collapses while doing sports, you have to almost fear for the worst and be ready to attend right away. Uh, I know, uh, for example, the NHL does have dedicated personnel ready to deal with any suspected arrest on ice. Uh, Other professional sporting leagues have similar things there because it is so important just to attend to people quickly and restore their heartbeat to a normal heartbeat. Um, you know, the bigger problem is when this happens in, you know, recreational leagues and other sporting environments where people may not 
recognize it as quickly as they need to. And really, it comes down to doing CPR as fast as you can and getting an automated defibrillator to the patient. Mm. Uh, Dr. Adradi, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. season of 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global Stream on Stack TV